Welcome into the show. Thanks for tuning in this Tuesday morning, June the 18th. It is 9 a.m. on the East Coast. This is your 6 a.m. West Coast wake-up call at all time zones in between and around the world. Thanks for tuning in. More World Cup action yesterday. France getting a controversial penalty and then a controversial makeup uh, on the first attempt being uh, missed and scoring and winning 1-0 over Nigeria. Uh, I thought it was a little soft, to be honest. Uh, the penalty resulting in a second yellow and a red card for uh, the Nigerian defender, and they finished the game with 10 on the field for Nigeria. Today at 3 p.m. Eastern, we have two matches, Jamaica and Australia and Italy and Brazil. Um, so we'll see how those those matches shape up. Um, last night, uh, Copa America action, Chile uh, routed Japan 4-0. Uh, today, um, Peru, Bolivia play, and Venezuela and Brazil um, play at 8.30 p.m. Eastern Standard Time. Um, also, some of the uh, the Gold Cup action uh, tonight, Panama and Trinidad uh, kick off at 7.30 p.m. Eastern. And at 10 p.m. Eastern, the U.S. hosts Guyana. Uh, we'll see, um, you know, how the U.S. team looks. I mean, it's Guyana. I don't anticipate there being any problems there. So I don't know that we're going to get any answers compared to what we've seen recently from the uh, the men's national team, etc. Um, so anyway, um, you know, we'll see how those things shape up. The women's World Cup has just been um, a lot, a lot of really good uh, football, but then you're also seeing a little bit of a gap. Uh, there's there's some teams that are still on the rise. Uh, still, still trying to figure out, uh, you know, resources on a domestic level that are hindering their ability to, to grow. But the one thing I will say is the countries that are starting to put money into the game are, are really paying off and it's, and it's going, uh, you know, extremely, uh, well for them. And, uh, and so that's good to see. And, uh, we're, we're really, um, I'm really excited about where where the women's game is going um it is getting bigger and bigger and and more resources and and it should be it's it's been um it's been a long time overdue to be honest so uh so anyway uh, yeah it when when we look at all of these matches going on uh between the the um the gold cup the copa america uh, you have the Euros U21 Championship um, that that's playing uh, today as well. Um, got an England France matchup there at 3 p.m. Eastern. Um, you're you're getting a um, you're getting a lot of a lot of matches uh, going on this summer. Uh, at, at least right now during the month of June, and then we'll get preseason um, kicking off. For um, most of Europe in July, and then we're back at it again in August. So it, it's going to be a, a busy summer. Um, not quite as slow, I'm sure, as some thought, thinking about you know last year being the Men's World Cup, this being the Women's World Cup, what else is going on? But you have Copa America going on, um, the U21 Euro Championships. You have the Gold Cup going on, which is not near as uh, high of a tournament as... Copa America, uh, but, um, you know, I think that's a situation where, and we've seen comments recently from uh, Tata Martino, the uh, head coach of the, the Mexican national team, talking about how he wished Mexico was playing in Copa America uh, instead of the Gold Cup, and he's right. I mean, the competition's much better there, and um, it, they would get a better test and there would be more meaningful games in the Gold Cup. He's not wrong, and 
You know, I think the U.S. should embrace that same mentality and same philosophy um, as well. So, um, you know, it when when we look at the state of American soccer and we look at our national team on the men's side, we should be trying to find ways for them to get challenges as much and as often as we can, and um, and, and not not getting those challenges and playing, you know, uh, no disrespect to Guyana, but the U.S. needs to be trying to challenge themselves regu- regularly so they can see where they are um, and and so that the, the coaching staff as well as the players can see if they can adjust, see if they can get better. Um, you know, when you when you play these, Matches like Guyana, I mean, it's like the U.S. Women's National Team playing Thailand in the uh, Women's World Cup. I mean, what did we learn? Well, the U.S. is way, way above the class of Thailand. That's what we learned. Did we learn much about the, the U.S. Women's National Team in that match? Not really. Um, the Chilean match the second match for the U.S. Women's National Team on Sunday, we learned a lot more. They won 3-0. They were they were definitely uh, in control of that match. They looked good. Could have been worse for Chile, but they have probably the best goalkeeper in the world at this point um, who, who made some incredible saves. But, you know, that was a, a much better picture. And I think if you come out of that match as a U.S. Women's National Team player or coach staff member you're going okay things are going pretty good and the 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 real test and the only test of the group and and you know from a drama perspective it's unfortunate that it's not happening until the third match of the group uh i wish it had been the first match to be honest uh i think it, i think that group would have been a lot more entertaining um had that had the usa sweden match been the first match of the group and not the last group uh last game of the group um basically the u.s wins the group now with a draw or a win um and sweden can win the group with a win uh and and you know how much do they go at it? I don't know. Um, but I think that match would have been much more compelling had it been the first match, maybe the second match. Being the last match, they're both already through. We'll, we'll see how it plays out. Um, but that's going to be a, a, a much tougher test. Sweden has, has given the U.S. Uh, women's national team issues when they've played in the past. And um, and and we'll see if they can continue to do that in, in this next match. But you know, testing is is what you're looking for uh, when you're running a program. You want to get an accurate measurement of what you're doing, how you're doing it, and and you know what what you need to improve on. All of those things you can't really tell when you're the U.S. Women's National Team playing Thailand and everything's just going in. You have one of those nights, everything's going in, you're just way above the, the level of your opponent, etc. You get a, you get a, It's much easier to evaluate, whether that's a self-evaluation or a coaching evaluation, when you are in a situation where you are you know, having to, to look at the... Um, you know, the level of an opponent like a Sweden, in the case of the U.S. Women's National Team, and themselves, it's a much truer picture of where you're at. How well are you clicking? How well are you playing? Uh, if, you, if, you're, if you are the U.S. Men's National Team, um, you know, playing those matches leading up to the Gold Cup gave us a better picture of where we are than the Gold Cup. So... You want to, to be playing matches that are giving you evaluations, and then you want to be playing in meaningful competitions that are helping you get better because ultimately the ultimate prize in all of this is to get, and win, get to and win the World Cup. As a national team, that is the peak. And if that, become, if that is the goal for the U.S. men's national team, 
to to win a World Cup, then every four-year cycle should be about testing, proving yourself, building up towards, playing in competitions that prepare you for the World Cup. And if you're not in that, what are we doing? What are we doing? I mean, we're, we're just wasting time. And so we'll see. Uh, we'll see how things shape up. Um, you know, time will tell. That's that's all I know. Time will tell. And um, and and we'll see the, the U.S. national team. I don't think it's going to have, you know, any issues tonight with Guyana. If they do. Whew, um, that won't be good. So anyway. Our sponsor this half hour is Dut Kick Brand. The uh, website for Dut Kick Brand is D-U-T-K-I-G-Brand.com. Again, that is D-U-T-K-I-G-Brand.com. You can get your coaching planners, your your player uh, planners. There's all kinds of tools and resources that are um, available. And, and when you go there, use the promo code DWSHOW to get 10% off your order and support this show at the same time. Again, that is DWSHOW, and you'll get 10% off your order, all at DutKickBrand.com. Check them out. Go there today. Place your order. Get it in time for your upcoming upcoming training sessions or your or your fall season. Um they're incredible products and uh and it would be worth your time to check them out so again visit them at dutkickbrand.com we'll be right back after this Welcome back into the show. Thanks for tuning in this Tuesday morning, June the 18th. We are pleased to be joined by Ken Benzinger, author of Red Card. Ken, welcome to the show. How are you this morning? I'm great. Thanks uh, for having me on today. So your book um, details, Red Card details this FIFA scandal uh, that was... um, uncovered and exposed um in the in the last few years um and culminated in arrest and in in ousters within fifa within the 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 game around uh the world um leaders around the world etc before we get into some of that story and it's fascinating to me the 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 work that you you covered and in the way that you put this together in the book um what drove you to look at this in the first place? So I was uh, actually, it's a fun story for me to tell. I first got interested in this world, and, and by way of background, I should say that I'm uh, an investigative reporter with a business background um, and not necessarily a sports reporter. Um, I, I'm a sports fan, and I periodically convinced editors over the years to allow me to do sports reporting uh, here and there, but it's never been my full-time beat. Um, 
But in my previous job, I used to work at Times. I had an editor who was from Trinidad. And um, this was, gosh, getting back to maybe like 2009, 2010, he used to regale me with stories about this guy from Trinidad called Jack Warner, who I, whom I'd never heard of. I didn't grow up playing the sport, and, and though I'd become a, a soccer fan, I didn't really know much about its governance at the time. And he would tell me about Jack Warner and what a scoundrel he was. And, um, and I became interested in Jack Warner and would Google around on him. And um, inevitably, when I started digging into Jack Warner, there'd always be a mention or two of his sort of sidekick, Chuck Blazer. And Chuck Blazer interested me because he was an American, and, I, and it seemed astounding to me that someone as important as him could have sort of gone for as many years with so much power and yet have no public profile in the U.S. or almost no public profile. And so I always had it on my list, like I'd like to write a profile of Chuck Blazer and just learn more about him. Um, but it wasn't something that ever came together when I was at the LA Times. And when I went to BuzzFeed, um, uh, which is where I currently work on the investigations team, um, I had a story list of stories I'd like to do. And number two or three in the list was this profile of Chuck Blazer. And the number one story in the list fell apart, basically because I got scooped by the Wall Street Journal on that topic. And there was something wrong with number two or it could wait. And so early in in 2014 or around March of 2014, uh, my boss and I agreed that we that it was time to try to do a Chuck Blazer profile. So I spent several months writing that profile um, and it ran uh, right as the 2014 World Cup in Brazil uh, was starting. I think it ran within a day or two of the starting, starting date of the World Cup tournament. And the idea was to run the article and then move on to other topics. And um, the article did pretty well. It was well received in the in the soccer football community, um, um, and outside of it as well. But but you know after that I, I sort of moved on with my life and moved on to topics that had nothing to do with with soccer. Um, and it wasn't until a year later, uh, almost almost exactly a year, like 360 days after I ran the article, is when the those famous raids in Zurich happened, where um, Swiss. Um, went into multiple Zurich hotels and arrested all these FIFA officials. And, the, and at that point, the world became aware that there was a U.S. investigation of corruption in the sport. Um, it wasn't until then, and, within, uh, and a few days later, when uh, it came out that Blazer had been a cooperator in the case, that my, that my article really blew up, went viral, was the most read story on the website, and had sort of a second life, which is pretty unusual for a big seven or 8,000 word feature to uh, to do like that. Usually they come out and, it, and they pop in the first few days and, and life goes on. But this, this story found its renaissance a year after publication. Um, and there was a tremendous amount of interest at that point um, for me to do more. And um, in, in kind of a whirlwind fashion, I went from, gee whiz, it's funny how that year old story blew up again to having a book deal and a movie deal and um, realizing that now I had to immerse myself in the, in the history and culture of a sport that I was only really dimly aware of. And, uh, and that's, that's how that adventure began. So just getting started down this fascinating road, and for those of us who love the sport and follow the sport, live the sport, um, you, you, you have written a really incredible, I mean, it's, it's almost so crazy that the only thing it could be is true. Just some of the things that you covered and, and uncovered in your investigation. And you said, um, in, towards the beginning of the book, uh, quote, dozens of people from more than 15 different countries would eventually be charged with violating the United States, stiff racketeering, money laundering, fraud, and tax laws exposed for their part in what prosecutors described as a decades-long, highly orchestrated criminal conspiracy calculated to twist the beloved sport to their selfish designs. Many of those caught up in the investigation would throw themselves at the mercy of the Department of Justice, forfeiting hundreds of millions of dollars and quietly agreeing to cooperate. When you looked into this, did you have any idea when you first wrote this expose on Chuck Blazer, that you were going to end up with a story that encapsulated those kinds of facts and issues and that amount of money and people? I mean, there's no way. When I was investigating Blazer, it was really clear from what was out there already 
um, in 2014 that that this was not the clean hands were not his that he was that it was dirty do, doings by him and it, it looked all filthy but there was no evidence that I had that he that he was part of an investigation if there would be a bigger investigation or it went much further beyond him I actually recall calling the FBI and the DOJ in in early months 2014 asking them um, if there's anything going on and they you know didn't give me a useful answer they, they didn't they do this thing where they don't deny it, but they don't confirm it. That what they say is we don't discuss ongoing investigations and we don't um, deny or confirm the existence of investigations. But you, you just there was no there was no evidence that they had anything going on. Um, and I spoke to Blazer on the phone, and he didn't really want to talk. Looking back, of course, the reason he didn't want to talk is because he wasn't allowed to talk. He was a cooperator, but at the time, um, it struck me as he didn't want to talk because he knew he had dirty hands. Um, and it was it was impossible for me to imagine at that point, and clearly for even people in the in the filthiest ranks of the world of FISA to imagine that they were all under investigation. Um, you know, the evidence that that the that the prosecutors kept secret really well is the fact they were able to arrest all these people completely unaware, and and then to do it again. Um, so no, I think it was a complete surprise that it could be something this big. And whenever whenever you look at the sport. And you and you're, you know, maybe you're a, a mom, you're a dad, you're, you're following your kids and maybe you turn on the TV and you watch, you know, FC Barcelona play Liverpool in a Champions League semifinal, things like that. You're not generally thinking about conspiracy and soccer cartel and fraud and bribery. But when you when you looked into this and you started kind of going down this um kind of rabbit hole or rabbit trail of of well this is connected to this and then looking into this well how did this go to here and 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 you do such a good job of detailing that in the book when you were looking into all of that did you start to get a sense of how those actions by uh individuals like Chuck Blazer like Jack Warner um, were having an adverse effect on the game itself around the world. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, that was that was part of the, um, I think, the learning experience for me in um, in reporting this out was was in as I learned the history of, of the sport and also the history of of, of man, the, the organization of FIFA and the confederations and the national associations and the history of corruption investigations and all this, also the, the understanding of what the impact of all this had on, on the different levels of the sport. And because of the sort of rigid hierarchical structure of FIFA that radiates down all the way down to, you know, national associations and down to youth organizations in many countries, um, it becomes really clear the impact of corruption on that. You can really see it. And when you travel, as I did for the story, and you visit countries in South America and um, elsewhere, you see how how undernourished um, the sport is at many levels, and how unfair many aspects of the sport are. Um, it becomes really crystal clear um, how money that should have been directed um, and resources that should have been directed to people who need it at were instead taken by these people who are corrupt. It's it's a it's a good one to see where the the crimes are far from victimless, right? You you see how people are hurt and. Um, you know, I think we still see it today. I think I think there's some real great iniquities in the sport that um, uh, are the product of a culture where greed and self-interest uh, dominate. In in terms of the um, the U.S.'s role, just for the audience' sake, why was it the U.S. government and the FBI and the DOJ that got involved? Why wasn't it England? Why wasn't it France? Why wasn't it another country? Why was it the, the U.S. Yeah, I mean, taking such an active role? Yeah, I think, why, I mean, it's a good question. I think that the simple answer is that no one else would do it. Um, the English and the French and the Italians and um had never so much as even tried to go after corruption in the sport. Um, the Swiss and the Brazilians had taken a few half-hearted swings at it, but they never got anywhere. The Swiss would opened um, a big investigation following the, the collapse and bankruptcy of a organization called International uh, Sports and Leisure, ISL, which was 
um, which basically controlled all rights in, uh, for FIFA for many, many years and was profoundly corrupt. The Swiss had all they needed to, to really do a massive uh, criminal investigation of that and in the end let everyone off, let them all off, Didn't just didn't have the guts to make it a, a criminal thing. Um, they let uh, two of the most corrupt people in the sports history pay um, uh, what amounted to fines that were a fraction of all the money they profited off the sport and then um, and then wa- and let them walk away with not even a slap on the wrist. The Brazilians were constantly opening investigations into corruption and then for political pur- political reasons, excuse me, um, uh, within within their uh, political structure down there within their Congress um, would never go any further. They would never go beyond a, a prosecutor's um, recommendation that there be an investigation or a prosecutor's would never take the case. Um, uh, and so there's always these all these institutions that were aware of serious problems with sports, but none of them ever took a swing at it. And I think the reason for that is because in so many countries, um, uh, soccer's role is, is, is so deeply intertwined in the power structure at the highest levels of government that it, it's politically almost impossible to go after it. The damage for any politician or any any public figure is just is just too great. It's it's kind of hard um, to really appreciate that as an American soccer fan or someone who loves the sport here, the role it has in other countries unless one has spent considerable time in those places. Um, it's it's if you go to a country like Brazil or you go to a country um, like Italy um, uh, or Argentina. Um, soccer isn't just a really popular pastime. It's also a political pastime and an economic uh, influencer in the whole country. Um, and I, the closest I can think of is if you imagine that the N- NBA, NFL, and Major League Baseball were all rolled into one thing. And you can imagine not just the popularity, but also the political muscle that would have and um, the influence it would have on, on political activities and economic activities and social activities and cultural um, identity. That's what it's like in those countries, and I think it just was too hot to touch. When people would try to touch it, they would get burned. Um, but the 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 fact that the U.S. is is uh, still has soccer as the fourth or fifth most popular sport, um, in a funny way, helped uh, make that investigation possible because it provided the kind of cult cover that investigators needed to run it in secret. Um, one of the things I discovered while reporting out Red Card was how the investigators in the U.S. quickly learned not to tell, not to rely on investigators from other countries, um, which is often what you do when you're, a, when you're an American prosecutor and you're doing an international case, you're going to be on the phone with or traveling to visit um, and prosecutors from other countries because you want their help. You want to get documents. You want to interview people. So you need their help to do it because you can't, an FBI agent can't just fly to Germany or something and, and interview people. They need, to have, they need to do it with German law enforcement. Well, in this case, they learned early on to keep those people out of the loop completely because they couldn't trust them because soccer was special. And if you told a German or a British law enforcement agent that you were investigating corruption in sport, it was going to end up in the newspapers within a couple of days. Um, and so that was a challenge and, and uh, was the way the rest of the country just wouldn't do it. And to prevent undermining it, um, uh, they kept it secret. And, you know, from a legal standpoint, the way they were able to do this case is because um, the dollar is the denomination of currency that's used in that throughout the whole world and um, has been the currency used to pay bribes and, and, to, and to commit corrupt acts in, in soccer since time immemorial, or at least since the 1970s. So all these transactions um, tended to be denominated in dollars, and they also tended to flow through American banks at some point. Um, a funny quirk of the world banking system is that even if, if you're an <clears throat> Uruguayan and you want to bribe a Brazilian, and you want to wire a million dollars to him, you send that wire, even though it's going from an Uruguayan bank to a Brazilian bank, it's most likely going to flow through a bank in New York, D.C., or Miami on its way to uh, in, uh, from Brazil or Uruguay to Brazil. And because it goes through these American intermediary banks, um, you've now created jurisdiction in the U.S., and that's the jurisdictional hook the prosecutors use primarily to make the case. So... One of the things that you said was that America's case against soccer corruption did not start at the top, um, that it was a, a product of, of careful, patient police work by dedicated investigators. And then you went on to say, and it is still very much ongoing. 
Is is mm-hmm. this something that they're still keeping an eye on, still investigating, still looking into? They are, and I have to say, as a reporter, it's, it's uh, at times frustrating because I don't know where it's going. Um, there was some hints, you know, that the timeline is that the investigation, I, I figured this out and I was the first to report it, was really began in mid-2010, but it didn't become public until, you know, those arrests I mentioned earlier in, in May 2015. Um, there was an indictment then. There was a second indictment um, in late uh, 2015, in December 2015. Um, and then there have been several other individuals who were um, charged with crimes since then. But the most recent pers- uh, most recent uh, uh, people charged with crimes were dating back to um, uh, 2017, maybe early 2018. Um, essentially, though, we haven't seen significant public advances in the case since um, since the second half of 2017. And um, despite that, the prosecutors seem to be resisting sewing up the case. Um, all these people who have been charged with a crime and have um, uh, pleaded guilty and are cooperating with the case and are awaiting their criminal sentencing um, continue to get their sentences pushed forward um, at the urging of the prosecution. They're kicking the can further and further down the road. You can't you can't wrap up a case until you sentence all the guilty parties. And for some reason, that's not happening. And traditionally, typically, prosecutors want to push off sentencing of cooperators because they still need their cooperation. If you think about cooperation as a kind of a uh, an arrangement between prosecutors and a and a and someone who is um, cooperating with them, the deal is um, uh, the cooperator is looking for their mercy. So he's willing, he or she is willing to do anything the prosecutors tell them to do in hopes that when it comes time for their criminal sentencing. They'll, the prosecutors will say nice things to them, to the judge about them, and recommend a smaller sentence. Um, and there's really no limit to the amount of goodwill you can build up as a, as a cooperator with the prosecutors um, in your attempt to stay out of jail or to stay in jail for as short a time as possible. Um, uh, and prosecutors know that. They also know that once they sentence you, once you once the judge sentences you, and you get your prison time, there's nothing more the prosecutors can offer you. There's no there's no more carrot they can dangle over your head. And therefore, your incentive to be a good uh, cooperator or a good witness is is down to basically zero. So typically, when a a sentence is delayed, it's because something's still brewing. They still want some information from that cooperator. They still want their testimony at trial, if there is a trial, this kind of stuff. Um, And so we're seeing sentence after sentence after sentence delayed, which is a continual tip that there's something else coming. But we don't know what. And it's been that way for 18 months or more. Um, just today, I was tweeting that uh, Honduran, who had been uh, president of the country of Honduras, as well as president of their soccer federation, um, who pleaded guilty to two or three uh, counts of the case, he was set to be sentenced tomorrow, and it's now just been delayed till October. Um, and that's just every couple of weeks, someone else gets their sentence delayed. It all suggests some other shoe's going to fall, but when, I really don't know. In your investigation and looking at this corruption that is you know was was across the globe it was not just one person i mean this was a a massive network of of you know money changing hands bribes etc um in looking at that what did you learn about the structure the governance aspect of fifa Uh, what I learned. I'm, yeah, I mean, you mean? in terms of how they make decisions, how how decisions are then executed, how do they open themselves up, for example, to corruption in bribery, etc. Ah, uh, yeah, I understand. I'm sorry. Um, so, you know, uh, FIFA is organized as a democracy, and as I dug around and read a lot of stuff and looked at the history of it, it was pretty clear of it that it was sort of a, an example of where democracy can go wrong. Um, the way it's organized, it's changed a little bit, but the way it was organized at the time the corruption was sort of at its apparent peak was there was a, um, there's every, every member of, um, of FIFA, meaning every nation that's a FIFA member, um, has one representative seat on the, in the FIFA Congress. Um, there's currently about 211 members last time I checked. So there was 211 voting member countries in FIFA. They vote for the. They traditionally voted for the president, um, and a few other things. But that was that was the limit to what they voted on. Meanwhile, there was an executive um, committee, an executive council. Now it's called 
um, that was composed of at the time of 24 um, members, including the president of FIFA, um, who was, as we said, elected by the Congress, um, and then typically um, presidents of the, of the six confederations and an assortment of other people who were brought into the committee. And they um, run the day-to-day operations of FIFA via vote. So they would determine um, all kinds of things, but most critically, where the World Cups were held, where the U-20 World Cups, the Women's World Cups, who had the marketing contracts, who who had the hospitality contracts, et cetera, et cetera. Um, and um, the other thing is that FIFA is structured as a nonprofit, um, and so that FIFA is, uh, doesn't pay money to its officers um, other than a, a flat um, executive committee members get a flat uh, um, kind of an annual salary for that position. Um, but there's no bonuses, there's no profit sharing. The money is supposed to belong to the Congress and to each each country, and so it's supposed to be distributed to them. Um, and what happens is you develop a system where patronage uh, and and power hoarding become central. Um, the people who become president want to keep that job because it's an enormously powerful job and also one that's it's a very great lifestyle and has lots of influence and um, <clears throat> Uh, a high reputation, that sort of thing, or, or a big reputation anyway. Um, and so to ensure you, you continue in that position, um, you, you have the purse strings, you dole out money um, to people and make them thankful and grateful. Instead of doling out money, ensuring that it's properly distributed to everyone who loves the sport, um, you wink and a nod um, and the understanding that the president of the Ivory Coast Federation or the Sri Lanka Federation might not necessarily spend all that money um, in the in the places he, he or she should. Um, um, and so that's, I think, one of the, the principal forms of corruption is the way the money, the, the many, many millions and billions of dollars that come into FIFA are distributed to the federations without proper oversight. Um, and then at the executive committee level, since you have a group of people meeting in a room in secret with no outside accountability, you have this problem of um, uh, people have an incentive um, to have their to sell their vote um, or to take bribes for different kinds of activities. So, the, the selling the vote is would be most famously was the to, to, you know was the World Cup in South Africa, the World Cup in Qatar, even arguably the World Cup in, in Russia, where was money changing hands or other kinds of favor changing hands to sway the votes of executive committee members, and also. Um, as we learned in the case of this criminal, in, in, in the course of this criminal case, um, was money changing hands for people with such power to award um, TV and sponsorship rights contracts to bidders. Um, and it, at least according to the testimony in the case, yes, there were. There were people paying bribes for TV rights to executive committee members. When we look at the, gov- go, uh, the global governing body, FIFA, and you, you've, you've done a great job kind of for the audience explaining uh, FIFA, how they're constructed, how they govern, how they make decisions, how they could be open to bribes, et cetera. Uh, the, the United States Soccer Federation, which is the body under FIFA and its regional governing body, CONCACAF, uh, that governs the sport of soccer, you know, football here in the United States, um, has a, its own structure and system in terms of governance and voting, et cetera. Um, you know, when you look at the United States Soccer Federation, um, have you have you seen any similarities in 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 the way that certain things are decided or governed in the way that you looked at FIFA uh, in terms of, of of you know opening themselves up to either, conflicts of interest or, you know, having, um, for example, in the situation of, you know, Sunil Gulati, who was president of U.S. soccer through 2018, for example, being on the payroll of Robert Kraft, the owner of the uh, New England Revolution in Major League Soccer and and the New England Patriots. Yeah. So um, the U.S. Soccer Federation, you know, as you said, uh, uh, is underneath CONCACAF and CONCACAF is under FIFA. The president of CONCACAF is on the FIFA Executive Committee, now Council. Um, Chuck Blazer, who had been the General Secretary of CONCACAF, was up there, too, representing U.S. interests. And Sunil Gulati, who until February of 2018, if I have the dates right, was also president of the 
was, was president of the U.S. Soccer Federation at the same time, was on the executive council of FIFA. Um, uh, it's all part of that hierarchy. Um, and within it, you know, you have, uh, it sort of mirrors it. Like each is like, it's like a fractal. Each piece is mirrors the same pattern as above it. So within U.S., within CONCACAF, you have a structure that kind of mirrors the FIFA relationship with the, with the confederations. Within the U.S. Soccer Federation, you have a structure that kind of mirrors what's above it too. So within U.S. Soccer Federation, you have um, different committees. You have a executive committee. You have um, membership um, that that answers to it. It's a nonprofit, the same way that FIFA is kind of a nonprofit. Um, and the big, you know, uh, U.S. Soccer Federation has certain ways of generating money, and probably the most important of all is the rights to commercial and television rights to the national team, the men's team, and the women's team. Um, probably unique or close to unique among international or national associations, um, the U.S. Uh, has a structure where the women's uh, rights may be as, worth as much or more than the men's rights, or at least close to it. I don't know. I haven't seen the numbers, but that's certainly one of the arguments put out there. Um, but in any case, th those packages of rights have become much more valuable over the years, and, and U.S. soccer generates a big chunk of its uh, its revenue from that. And one of the big contentions out there is whether the way that that's handled is handled with clean hands and whether um, uh, the people who decide where to um, allocate those rights um, are doing it in, in the best interest of the sport as opposed to the interest of other people. So Sunil Gulati, as you mentioned, not only was he president of the U.S. Soccer Federation and a member of the FIFA Council, but he also um, had, was a former vice president of the of, um, uh, I'm sorry, I'm not sure what his title was, but he's a, he was a high up position, maybe vice president of soccer, United Marketing and MLS, where he was heavily involved for many years. Um, and then he was an employee of the New England Revolution of Robert Kraft. Um, and um, as I understand it, by his own admission, he was for at least six years while he was president of U.S. Soccer Federation, also a, a paid employee of Robert Kraft. And the issue there is that since Robert Kraft is the owner operator, of the New England um, Revolution, he's a stakeholder in in MLS and Soccer United Marketing, its marketing arm, and he personally stands to profit from um, from you know the market, the sale of the marketing rights to U.S. Soccer Federation properties. And um, like any commercial transaction, uh, if you are on the buying side, if you're buying the rights to resell them, you want to buy low and sell high. The lower the price they can get for those rights. Um, that is, they talking about marketing, um, and the more, then the bigger their profit is, and it turns around time to sell advertising against it and everything else. And so the con contention would be that Sunil Gulati's interest is at a conflict. He should be trying to get the most, as president of U.S. Soccer Federation, he should be trying to get the most money possible for those rights. Um, but as an employee of MLS, um, he's got a financial interest in getting the best, the lowest price possible for those rights for the MLS. Don Garber, um, who of course um, is CEO of MLS, also um, for many years has held a, a board seat on the U.S. Soccer Federation and has um, the same or even worse conflict in, in his position. Um, and so the contention was, always, the question was always whether the fact that Soccer United Marketing um, was awarded over and over again, the rights to U.S. soccer properties was that proper? Was that done with the proper um, arm's length uh, manner? And was the price that U.S. Soccer Federation was getting those rights the true market price, or was it basically an inside deal? Um, and a lot of people have a lot of feelings about that. There is ongoing litigation about it, um, and um, a lot of people feel that, in fact, U.S. Soccer Federation, it's an inside con job, basically, in that um, U.S. Soccer Federation is selling itself out cheap um, so that the MLS owners can make more money. So, um, before we go, I, I want to ask you uh, if you could be made the head of soccer around the world. So, let's make you the king of FIFA for a day. And you could unilaterally make any decision uh, that would affect governance, knowing what you know, the corruption that you've uncovered, the things that you have researched and continue to research within U.S. soccer, within CONCACAF, uh, within FIFA itself, what would you do with your one day in charge? Oh, that's easy. I'd, I'd make everyone buy my book in paperback and read it. <laughs> um, it's a joke. But, Great answer. Um, Great answer. But, 
Yeah, th thank you. No, I mean, I think, I mean, I, this is a shameless plug, but I think that I've, I've heard from around the world, people, people who um, uh, run um, premiership teams. I've heard from uh, people high up within governance at, at UEFA, um, Commonwealth for sure, um, people who have read the book and thought that it was um, uh, for them understanding the inherent uh, governance problems the sport has. So I am shamelessly plugging it, but I do, I do think that I've, what I tried to do was to, was to provide a book that was both to read because it was a story and a narrative and it's a true crime story and people get arrested and handcuffed and all that kind of stuff. Um, but also really explains how this all works. Um, and there's a, there's a really fun book called how soccer explains the world, but that's a bunch of stories about um, uh, things that happen in the sport. It's not really an explainer. And I really wanted to do a book that explained how this works. So when you, when you read it, you can step away and feel like you have at least a, uh, a soccer one-on-one knowledge of the, of the sport and um, the book. Um, uh, which just came out in paperback last week. Um, I think uh, Red Card does a pretty good job of doing that. But um, once everyone's read that, what I would do in my one day, I think, um, was try to figure out uh, some way to find out who uh, a watchdog would be. I would try to subvert FIFA and all the confederations and all the national associations to some kind of third-party neutral arbiter who has regulatory power over it and can make sure that the books are clean. There's just... There's just no one to do that. I mean, the only watchdog this sport has ever really had is the U.S. Department of Justice. And we can't really count on that as a long-term solution. I don't think the Department of Justice wants to do that. I don't think it feels comfortable in the long-term doing that. Maybe in the short-term, but I think long-term, those prosecutors want to move on eventually, too. And it's just not, a, a, it's not the way these things should run. Um, but since it's an international organization based in Switzerland um, and has a very negative attitude towards national uh, regulators getting involved... It's, it's avoided that, and I think it's to its detriment. I think having to answer to some, having stake, uh, outside outside stakeholders or out, independent stake, out, independent voices that can say this is not okay and you have to stop is really important. You know, you can't rely on the auditing firms like KPMG and um, BBO and, and PricewaterhouseCooper to do it because we've seen it time and time again in many things, not just sports, where you don't, if you're a corrupt organization, you don't like the numbers that Pricewaterhouse is giving you, you just fire them and hire KPMG, and that's rampant in soccer. Um, it's just really clear that what it needs is, a, is some outside party to keep it in line. I completely agree. I think I think that that one of the things when we look at governance, whether whether it's a, a local sports organization or it's a global organization like FIFA, it's always important to put the right systems and structures in place so that you don't put yourself in a position where you get into conflicts of interest or you get, and it can be a pain at times, but you protect yourself and you protect those involved. And ultimately you're protecting the sport you're trying to govern. And uh, I think that's a smart way to go about it. The, I want to ask you, uh, what was the, the, the most surprising thing that you discovered in your research for red card? The most surprising thing. I mean, um, I you know, I'm, in, I'm I was very interested in seeing how the case unfolded, and I think one of the most surprising things I found is that how so much of this wasn't preconceived by the prosecutors. They didn't know what road they're going down to. I mean, I was green coming into this, but in 2010, 11, when these guys were digging in, they knew way less than I did. I mean, they really came in green, and it really surprised me how how they got to a big heart of the corruption of the sport just organically and on their own. Um, and how a, uh, an investigation that actually began as a look at Russia um, morphed into something that was in a totally different direction. Um, and that was fascinating to me. As I reported it, I discovered that it really had begun as a tip um, uh, from the UK about um, possible Russian corruption with, with the World Cup bid for 2018. Um, and it took sort of a dramatic left turn towards North and South America. Um, and, it, and it was just fascinating to see how that came together. And also sort of it's a big what if, because if a few things didn't work out the way they had wanted, um, it never would have happened. If Chuck Blazer hadn't been a tax cheat on top of being a, a crook, um, they never would have got him. And I don't think the case ever would have gone anywhere. If Chuck Blazer had just paid taxes, even if he had cheated on his taxes, I think he would have got away with it. And they ne we never would have seen this case go anywhere. And it would have been like a lot of Justice Department cases, which is, they open it up well-intentioned, they can't get anything, and they close it down quietly. Um, and uh, that was very surprising to me. I mean, 
There's also a few missteps in the case where they were thing there were sort of things that got away that shouldn't have got away. There's several key figures in the case that got away. I think one who who should have been brought to justice is uh, uh, Ricardo Teixeira, who is um, a Brazilian whose father-in-law for many years was um, uh, Joao Javelin, who was president of FIFA for, gosh, 24 years or something. Two incredibly corrupt figures. Um, Javelin died too early to get him, but uh, Teixeira was living in Miami, um, and they could have got him, and they, and they could have got him, and they didn't. And by the time they wanted to get him, it was too late. He was back in Brazil, and Brazil doesn't extradite its citizens. Um, so um, I was interested in the missteps, I was interested in the missed opportunities. Um, uh, more than anything, I was interested in in, in the way that um, that, but for a few a few little things here and there, it never would happen. Well, it's a it's a fascinating story and a and a fascinating ride uh, going through the 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 book Red Card. I I highly recommend to everyone watching listening. If you have not taken the time to to get Ken's book Red Card, do it today. It is now out on paperback. You can get it on your Kindle devices um, as well uh, if you if you prefer the digital uh, reading experience. Um, but it it is worth your read to see uh, this fascinating tell that affected the, the game of soccer all over the world and is still being felt. The the ramifications of this is still being felt today. Um, and uh, and we look forward to, to following that story, but also your work uh, as well. And, and who knows, maybe you'll have uh, Yellow Card coming out at some point, uh, cautionary tales <laughs> of, of U.S. soccer at some point that we, we, can, uh, we can find. And uh, we, we, we'd love to have you back on to chat uh, on that one as well in the future. It would be my pleasure. I mean, Yellow Card, we'll have to work on the title. I feel like you can't, once you go to Red Card, you can't really go to, you can't sort of downgrade the other part. Watch it find something stronger. I know, for, I know. That that was on the fly, but it was the best I could come up with uh, in the moment. No, I, mean, I, like, I like what you're thinking. We just got to, we, we can do better. You and I will have to chat off about, about what the title of that book would be. Um, um, you know, I certainly there's people on the internet who like to called like Cabal um, or something along those lines. So that's where the hearts of American soccer fans are. So, it's a work in progress. We'll figure it out. Absolutely. Well, thank you, Ken, for coming on the show. We really do appreciate you spending some time with us. And uh, again, everyone, go get that book, Red Card. It is worth the read. Thanks, Ken, for coming on the show. My pleasure. Thanks for having me, and uh, have a good one. Thank you. That was Ken Benzinger, the author of Red Card. Uh, fascinating, fascinating look into the corruption in the sport of soccer all over the world. And uh, it is worth your time and worth your read. Speaking of being worth your time and your read, if you have not learned about Charity Water, you should go to charitywater.org. They are the sponsor this half hour, and they provide clean drinking water to people all over the world. You can learn more about Charity Water again at charitywater.org. We'll be right back after this. No one, no man, no woman, no child should ever have to drink green water with bugs, with algae, with disease in it. Bad water and a lack of toilets kills more people than all the wars in the world. We know how to bring clean drinking water right now to every single person on earth. And when you can bring water into communities, it truly transforms them. It changes everything. Now you could know that you'd made a difference. You could know that you had truly impacted the life of a family, of a community, of a region. There was either clean water or there wasn't. We believe in a world where every single person has clean and safe water to drink, and we will continue fighting until that happens.
Welcome back into the show. Thanks for tuning in this Tuesday morning, June the 18th. Um, I could have gone for 10 hours with Ken on all of this stuff, this corruption stuff. And uh, speaking of, um, you know, further investigations, uh, today, Michelle Platani, the former president of UEFA and head of European football, has been arrested over the decision to award the 2022 World Cup to Qatar. The former France international captain was detained by French police on Tuesday morning in Nanterre a western suburb of Paris as part of the investigation into corruption surrounding how the 2022 World Cup hosting rights were awarded. Investigators leading the fight against corruption within football have arrested him on suspicion of corruption as part of the case looking into how Qatar won the right to host the next World Cup. Um, The investigations continue. It seems like red card part two may be on the horizon for Ken. Um, and as I was joking with him at the end, um, uh, of our interview, um, maybe, maybe, a, a yellow card or, or, uh, so, something, um, better in terms of a title, um, can, can come as a sequel and continue to follow what's going on as well as, um, you know, soccer United marketing and it's in, in us soccer and major league soccer and, and, there is very much a similarity in the way that FIFA has been governed and operated and in in U.S. soccer. Uh, although the mechanics of both organizations are not identical, there is a there is a very similar spirit in the way that both have been run and and power, control, money have have been at the heart of it. And the game um, is is not been the the most uh, important priority for the federation it has been the, the the wishes and the desires of a few over the many and um, you know when, when you come to understand that part and you come to understand that point about U.S. soccer it gives you a perspective of um, you know what you should be looking at what you should be looking into and and having um you know not wearing the rose colored glasses it's real easy to to mistake this um you know love for your country and your national teams and see, wanting to see them be successful um wanting our youth national teams it, look those athletes those players that are on the field um that are playing and wearing the national team crest um you know they they that is not what we're talking about. That is not who we are talking about. What we're talking about are those at the very top of the Federation who are responsible for leading this Federation and uh, providing the vision and direction and decision-making and where the money goes with the Federation. And it is it is clear to see with the current television contract between U.S. Soccer and Major League Soccer it is clear to see how the there's been favoritism shown time and time again to major league soccer. We have pulled money out of the Federation to prop up major league soccer, to give them arbitrary value that they weren't getting on their own. And for all of the, the, the MLS sycophants out there who, who think that, that we had to do this, we have to do this to support. No, we don't. We don't have to to provide guaranteed outcomes. What we need is equal opportunity, not equal outcomes. We don't need to provide anyone with anything except for an opportunity. That way, when we create the right environment, the environments that we see around the structure and systems we see around the world, when we have a FIFA-compliant system in terms of play and governance in in regards to club opportunity meaning you can go as high and as big as you want if you're a good organization and you invest the kind of resources you want to invest in your own club if you do those kind of things and you build your club as big as you can go then that's equal opportunity that's not a guaranteed equal outcome 
But if we have, you know, people like Rocco Camiso who come in and say, look, I'm going to put in $100 million into the New York Cosmos and we're going to build this thing up over the course of the next 10 years to be the best club in America, he should have that ability to do that and not have to go through the hoops and the cabal and the soccer cartel set up between the U.S. Soccer Federation and Major League Soccer. They are in bed together. And they are keeping out everyone else. And the only way to the top right now is through them, is paying them off and and getting them to accept you into their club, period. And that's not how it should work. And, uh, you know, I hope that that as we continue to look into the future uh, of how we can get better as a country, we look right there at Soccer United Marketing, Major League Soccer, and the U.S. Soccer Federation and recognize that the athlete council that is responsible in theory for representing our athletes is not doing its job and putting itself in cahoots with Don Garber and the professional council has meant that a lot of things, including honoring our armed forces within the Federation, have been subverted due to those two councils. At the last AGM, at the last AGM, the Athlete Council and the Professional Council voted together to block the armed forces and the their their involvement with, with their soccer programming that, that is already a part of the Federation from having a voice on the board. It's ridiculous. And when we see that kind of corruption and, and those kinds of, I'll do you a favor, you do me a favor, eventually that, that needs to be exposed and it needs to be rooted out of our federation. We should have an open democratic system and it should be, should be based around our clubs. They are the vehicle. They are the vessel for everything that we do in this country and, and, and without clubs being that primary piece of developing coaches, developing players, etc. And then those collections of clubs coming together to have a voice. If their voices are silent so that Major League Soccer can have a bigger voice, that is ridiculous. And those are the things that need to change going forward. Um, it's you know, and and the time is now. The time is now. We we need to we need to make these changes, and uh, we'll see where the the Platini um, investigation goes. Um, you know, does it stick? Uh, was it just questioning? Was it was it truly an arrest? A um, little bit of conflicting reports on it. We'll we'll see. Um, the bottom line is this investigation isn't over as uh ken benzinger pointed out in his book red card and um and here we are on the same day that i asked that question and we have another arrest and uh we'll see where it goes um again i i hope ken and others are continue to do that great work and research and finding uh, what they can about soccer united marketing major league soccer in the U.S. Soccer Federation, because there are a lot of people in this country, you don't realize where you're, where the, where the pain is coming from, where the angst is coming from, where the frustration is coming from. But I'm telling you, it stems from the source is from this relationship between U.S. Soccer, Major League Soccer. It affects everything, including your five or six year old playing in rec soccer. I promise you. And over the next uh, weeks, uh, hopefully we can show you how that connects together because it is felt everywhere in this country. So thanks for tuning in again. We really do appreciate it. You can watch always live at 9 a.m. weekdays, Eastern Standard Time on DanielWorkman.com. We'll see everyone again tomorrow. Thanks for tuning in. <laughs>